Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a big one. We get to hear from the metal god himself, Kip Winger. Of course, everyone remembers Winger. They were huge in the mid to late 80s. They had about half a dozen big hits at the time, like 17, Madeline. For whatever reason, I called it Madeline in this interview. I know better. It just slipped out. So just ignore that part, okay, guys? This song right here, Can't Get Enough, Miles Away, tons of them. Well, in the early 90s, of course, it started to dry up like it did for everybody in that genre. But he never stopped making music. He did sort of start to evolve. Winger made a couple of band albums. He made a lot of solo albums. And as you all probably know, he really ventured heavily into classical music. In fact, three or four years ago, he was nominated for a Grammy for classical music, Conversations with Nijinsky. Um, we talk a lot about that in here. In fact, the first half of this conversation is pretty unique because it's ded dedicated largely to his classical music repertoire. Uh, along those same lines, last week, he just put out a new album called Get Jack, which is the score. Well, he did the music for a new musical on Jack the Ripper called Get Jack. And so it doesn't necessarily feature him singing, but he composed all the music. So we talk about that as well. Uh, we talk about the good days, of course, the, the rough days. You'll find he's a very sort of spiritual person here. Um, very wonderful guy, very mellow. I like to think this is sort of a different conversation than he might have had otherwise. Uh, we do talk a lot about all the rock and roll and everything like that, but it's more on the second half. Um, you can tell that that's really, the classical is really what's feeding him creatively right now, probably primarily, okay? But anyway, I've always really liked Winger. I know they get a bad rap sometimes. I don't think that's fair. I make my case in here as to why. I think he's an excellent musician. And if anything else, that Grammy nomination for classical should set everything straight. The guy earned his bona fides. I like him a lot. He lives in Nashville, but when we talked, he was right here in town in Denver. First and foremost, Kip, I have been a fan of yours since for a while. Um, I was not a hair, we'll call it hair metal. You know what I mean? 80s hard rock. I wasn't an 80s hard rock guy at the time. About 15 years ago, I read this Chuck Klosterman book called Fargo Rock City. And uh, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's basically this kind of this debate or this argument for the artistic merit of 80s hard rock. And uh, it recontextualized everything for me in a way that I hadn't thought of before. And now I love it. And I had, and it's been fun to rediscover bands like yours because at the time I wasn't really paying that much attention or I was sort of like, that's not really my thing. And now having gotten to know you musically for the last 15, 20 years or whatever it is, I just love it. But one question I've always had for you is, I mean, you grew up as a kid, I think anyway, sort of just as focused on classical music as rock and roll, maybe? It seems like you were one of these kids that could have done anything. Why did you pick rock and roll? Well, I wasn't one of those kids that could do anything, actually. Um, I heard classical music at a very, like, you know, not totally early age. I was about 16 when I kind of got the bug. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in a band with my brothers, and my parents were in a jazz band, and we played all the 70s you know, kind of hard rock stuff and Creedence Clearwater to Grand Funk to James Gang to some 70s pop stuff. And we played 
junior high, high school proms and all, you know, that whole thing around mm-hmm. Denver. And I was really focused on, you know, being in a rock band until I was about 16. And then I, I was always very into learning more and more and more. And I studied classical guitar at, a, at 16 and got kind of hooked on Baroque classical guitar. Mm. I would listen to classical music, maybe 13 or 14 and hear Bach and think, wow, that's amazing. Mm. But I, I, I didn't really, I gravitated to it. And when I, when I heard it, I recognized how that it was, it was leading me unconsciously. Mm. And then I, I studied ballet when I was 16 Yeah, on a fluke, actually girlfriend of mine wanted to take it and none of her friends would do it and I said I'll do it with you uh-huh. and I took to it I took to it like a duck to water and in there I heard all the music and I started thinking wow somebody wrote that you know <laughs> yeah. I heard Stravin- Stravinsky and all this kind of stuff yeah and then I started really acclimating my life to that and I was my band was playing at night and I was studying ballet during the day and I got recruited into the there was a there was a small little ballet company called the Colorado State Ballet, mm. and I was 16, so that would have been I was born in 61, so uh, 78 or so, 77. Mm-hmm. I was recruited in the company and kind of became a principal because I I took I took to it so fast and I really improved fast because I was really into it. Uh-huh. There was a point in my life where it was like, hmm, I could be a dancer. Would I want to do that? And it was like, no, nah, I'm really, I want to be a rock star. You know? mm-hmm. But I was listening to the music, and when I got hooked on, of course, most people that get into classical music, be, the first thing they get hooked on is impressionistic music because it's, it's the easiest thing to fall in love with, Debussy and Ravel. You mm-hmm. know? And so I really, I, I kept classical guitar and then I kind of dropped it and, and I think it was 21, 20 or 21. I, I, uh, they were going to stage a ballet on me as me as principal. And I, I walked into the headmistress office and was like, I gotta go. Sorry. Mm, really? Why? <laughs> and they were very, bu- they were very bummed because they, they were going to stage this ballet and I was going to be the lead and blah, blah, blah. And I was yeah. like, man, I gotta go to New York. So I was, I just want to go to New York and make it in music. That was really what I wanted huh. to do. So there's a little filler experiences in this era, this time period that nobody knows about. Like I studied ballet at 16 and then a little bit after that, I, I went to university of Denver uh-huh. and I, and I, for six months I took a music theory class and a, and an acting class that did musical theater. And hmm. I was in that musical by Sondheim called Follies. Okay. And so I kind of did some acting there and it was one semester at DU and I was also studying ballet. And so it was all this like super art explosion for me. Cause before that, all I'd done is, you know, play grand funk and Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. in the, in the clubs at night because I dropped out of high school at 15. Oh, and yeah, so I, I, I'm sorry I'm not giving this to you in a linear way. I okay. I uh I went to I went to Golden High for one year and then I left and then we did a bunch of gigs. Okay. And and this was all like 16, 17, 18 and I was studying ballet and then I and then my band with my brothers broke up so then I went to DU for one semester mm. and I was like this this ain't for me. Yeah. 
and then I said, okay, I got to go to New York. Bo Hill, big producer guy, yeah. was, we met him here. He, we were the first band he ever produced here in Denver. Huh. Other than his own, uh, other than his own band. Right. And uh, he moved to New York, and that was like my only connection. So I kind of followed yeah. into New York. Okay. And and uh, when I got to New York. I studied ballet. I kept taking ballet because I was really into it, and uh -huh. really into the, what it what it did for your performing. Took some bass lessons, just whatever. I was I didn't need them because I could play fine. But trying to study, study, study. Took some composition lessons for a little while and waited tables. Uh huh. And that was and that was I my know. life in in Hoboken, New Jersey, for a few no years. Worries. Let me ask you something. My dad is a uh, conducts symphonies. So I grew up with a very strong appreciation of music, maybe not classical music. And I was more athletic and he couldn't play catch with me or play basketball. And so I, he wanted me to be in his orchestra and I wanted him to play basketball. And instead we just fought, you know, we couldn't meet each other on the other on the other's turf. Was it was it your parents? Was it your dad or your mom who was kind of influencing this love of the arts or is it just two sides of Kip Winger going on at the same time? And if they were, were you ever bullied? I mean, kids can be awful at that age if you're a guy who's doing ballet, even if you are in a rock group at night. You know what I mean? Were you dealing with some of that? No, I wasn't. It was Good. strange. I never got bullied. I never got bullied. I, I uh, but I mean, I got out of school before I, I took uh, ballet. Okay. I, I dropped out of school at 15, you know. Yeah, good point. And I was just, I was just kind of doing my thing. So, and I was always in the cool crowd. Not the in Denver, it was like the jocks or the freaks. Uh -huh. But I was in between because I was like a musician, right? Got so it. it was kind of a different category. And I kind of had it going on, you know. I mm -hmm. didn't. I didn't well, uh, we know that I kind you're, of. You're one of the prettiest men that's well, ever lived, so we know this. <laughs> well, well, what I didn't mean it in that way. What oh, I okay. meant, what I meant was, what I meant was, and it's true to this day. Like I can, I can acclimate myself like a chameleon in mm -hmm. any group of people and feel pretty comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, so I never experienced that. I I always was steadfast and wanting to learn more art and grow and stuff like that. And and you know, it it came later when Winger made it big that mm -hmm. people made fun of me doing ballet I and mean, that's when that, oh. that's when i got bullied i mean my bullying period came when once you were the, famous <laughs> when metallica threw darts at my poster and yeah. beavis and butthead put me on the geeky guy's shirt right. publicly stoned to death all over the world I mean, that was that was uh that was my bullying yeah uh you know that was oh, quite a beating but but i mean you know the 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 thing was is I only want to become a better musician, and that's all I ever focused on. Were you always pursuing rock and roll with an with an affection or an interest in classical music, or do you think you could have? I don't even know. Uh, could you have joined an orchestra somewhere and played with like the Denver Symphony no. and been just as happy? No, 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 no. no. Okay. No, okay. no, no, no. I could have okay. done it because I wasn't a good instrumentalist. Oh. If I had had the if I had the right training at an early age. Blah blah blah. Maybe I could have, but no. I I learned very quickly that I didn't want to be a good instrumentalist because I did that classical guitar thing and I mm -hmm. did the five six hour a day thing, and and I wanted to be good and really play some great pieces and stuff. And I got and I realized really quickly that it was like okay, this is such a narrow 
bandwidth that you have to do to become a really great instrumentalist. I've got way too many aspects of, of what I want to do. I want to create this stuff. You know, I don't want to follow somebody else's path, you know, in terms of just being a, a and not that there's anything wrong with it, of course. I just mean it for me personally, creating the music was really the most important thing. And I learned that pretty early on. Mm. Okay. It had to have felt validating then getting that Grammy nomination for a piece of classical music after having gone through the bullying, as you mentioned, and, and just the marginalization oh, yeah. of winger as musicians and, you know, the value they bring to the rock world, whatever that might have been. And here's a Grammy nomination for something so out of everyone else's depth. And yet you're able to succeed at that. That had to have been validating super vindication it was the, it was like how do you come back from being the geek on beavis and butthead yeah. you get a, nom a grammy nomination for classic composition i feel like i set the record straight there yeah. and, and and it didn't come easy yeah, you know? yeah. but it, but it came authentic i was very um i didn't expect it it wasn't something i was it wasn't a goal of mine or anything like that a friend of mine submitted the album and uh, the categories and I thought, well, good luck. That'll never happen. <laughs> and and then I got an email from a good friend of mine, Teddy Andriotis's wife, saying, "Congratulations!" Yeah. You know, and I was like, "Oh my!" And I looked at it, and I was like, "Oh my God!" Yeah, you can never take that away. Yeah, you know. So that was cool. That was cool. Let's talk about that. Did you go to the ceremony? Did you? What was it? Did you get all dressed up in a tux? How did you celebrate? What did you do? I invited the conductor from San Francisco Ballet. Because without him, it would have never happened. And he championed my music and 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 helped fund the recording. Okay. And so yeah, yeah, we went to the the Grammys, and you know the the classical people get. It's not on the televised, mm -hmm. you know. You, you, they do the live stream and stuff, and mm -hmm. and so. But the ceremony was really cool, and you know, to see my name up on the thing. Well, the, the most kind of for me as a person on the journey that I've been, the most awestruck. I was just was seeing my name with the other composers on that list. That was like, yeah, that was totally surreal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause I, I came, I came from the other side of the universe to get on that thing. And they've all been, yeah. they're all great composers and they've been doing it their whole lives, you know? Yeah. And so I was super honored to be there and pretty shell shocked. Yeah. I uh, I just was so I was happy for you because everything you're saying I'm, I appreciate it as a fan I'm I'm I've constructed my own narrative of what I think Kip Winger is going through or what you know what his life must have been like and so when all of this happened I'm just I'm kind of proud for you I'm like yes the guy is getting some validation after all this time he deserves it um, we should say for anyone who doesn't know it, the album was called Conversations with Nijinsky.
And one thing I was curious is a lot of the classical work that you've done has tied back to your experience with ballet. Are you most comfortable writing for that medium or would you ever just, you know, do some kind of all out symphony that doesn't relate to ballet in some form? How do you feel about this now? Are you going to continue with it? So it's very ironic, and I, I never told this story in public, but I, you know, my goal was to write music for ballet. I wanted to write music for ballet because I felt like, man, I did ballet. I feel like when I'm composing, I dance around the room. You know? mm -hmm. uh, the first ballet I did with San Francisco Ballet was choreographed by Chris Wielden, who's now like the biggest choreographer in the world. Mm. And I solicited so many choreographers after that, and I never got a call back. It was really? the weirdest thing. It was like my biggest goal was to write music for ballet. Ghost was a hit. Mm -hmm. San Francisco Ballet had that in their in in several seasons. It ran in 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 on and off different seasons for five years. They mm -hmm. took it to London. It played in they, the Pas de Deux was in Hong Kong. I saw it at Lincoln Center. You know. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about surreal. They did that in Paris. Oh, my gosh. In the theater that Nijinsky danced on, oh. man. Oh, my gosh. You know? Oh, wow. And so that was really like, wow, this is awesome. So, uh, a, a side note, by the way, when I came out with Nijinsky, I got an email going, hi, Mr. Winger. This is, uh, you know, I heard, what's this about Nijinsky? I'm, I'm Nijinsky's granddaughter. What? And I was like, oh, yeah, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So I immediately sent the MP3s to her and said, man, this is such an honor. I'm freaking out. Yeah. And we became we became pretty good friends. And and then ironically, they lived in Arizona and the Tucson Symphony was going to play the fourth movement from Nijinsky. And I was like, man, I'd love to invite you. And she's like, oh, that's great. I'd love to bring my mom. <laughs> so I'm sitting I'm sitting next to Tamara Nijinsky, Nijinsky's daughter, wow. and the and and Kinga, his granddaughter, for this, the, you know, the premiere yeah. of the fourth movement to Nijinsky. I mean, it was absolutely surreal. You know? Wow. And, uh, yeah, super cool. Not, not many people know that story. So that was, it's incredible. that was absolutely, uh, I mean, it was, I don't have words for it. It was yeah. absolutely surreal. And, and what was really cool about it is that we, I felt like they were family. I felt like I'd known yeah. them my whole life, you know. Anyway, um, oh, I tried to I tried to send my music to several choreographers, and, and I never got any bites, man. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, I there's a term that I called reading sign. Like if you walk out of a teepee in the morning and you stub your toe, you don't go hunting that day, <laughs> right? So I look at the universe, like yeah. I look around at what's happening to me, and I think, okay, well that ain't coming back to me so yeah. what where am i headed so i'm i'm doing a, a symphony number no. one for nashville symphony mm. and that's going to be in september they're doing two of my pieces actually so wow. it's the it's it's an even greater mm. honor because it's not ballet it's concert music and i and Giancarlo guerrero uh, recognized me as a composer you know that's amazing and he really he really pulled a fast one on me because I met him through my composition teacher. The last guy I studied with Richard Daniel Poor, and 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 Giancarlo knew my band, but he never told me that. Mm. So he was like, you know, he made me come on their terms in their language, and he they programmed Najinsky, and on the 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 first lecture, I, I they always asked the composers to speak before the show, and I. 
And at that point, he goes, I never told you this, but I was a fan of your band. <laughs> you know, he, wa- he was like, I wanted you to prove yourself. Yeah. So I never told you that. No it's really amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. So someone as musical as you are, when you're, <clears throat> is it just putting on a, is it a matter of sort of what mood you're in, which kind of music you're writing? I'm guessing you're like a lot of people and probably have some kind of studio in your home. Or if you don't, you're probably always creating or always writing do you just get in the mood in a classical mood for a month or two, or do you get in the rock mood for a month or two? How do you, how does this all work internally for you? Yeah. So I rotate it all in my head. Yeah. What, what's, what's happened, what's happened through studying classical music is I've gotten farther and farther away from tools mm. and I just kind of listen in mm. my mind and I go, Hmm, what's that shape? Cause I see it in shapes and oh. every artist sees everything differently. You know, some people, the artist process is really interesting and, it, and a lot of it for many artists and I'm talking painters, poets, sure. uh, writers, musicians, whatever it is, sculptors, it doesn't matter. The, the artistic process is a nonlinear process and you know, it can hit you at any point mm-hmm. and it's never the same. You could be playing the piano and something could hit you or you could hear something from a car driving by you and mm-hmm. it could give you an idea. It's really just how you apply what's happening in the universe around you yeah. to you know, manifest these ideas. So the first thing that was the most critical thing is to free myself of diatonic harmony where you're not trapped in major and minor scales, you know, mm. so, and, and this for, for people that go to university for composition and, and theory and stuff, this is, this is, uh, you know, 101, but a lot of people that come from my orientation mm-hmm. don't really get it. Cause like songwriters pretty much stick to major and minor keys, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I went through the whole thing where I had to you know, it's beyond atonal or, uh, you know, serial. I don't know if you know anything about this kind of stuff, but, you know, Schoenberg did atonal music and created tone rows and all this kind of thing. And, and that, and that fairly obsolete. And then there's this whole like post-tonal music with Mm. the pitch class system where you assign numbers to the pitches Mm. and it all becomes this pitch class value system. And, all this kind of stuff. And when I started discovering all that, then I was really free mm-hmm. to, to not be locked into, you know, standard kind of music. Yeah. And that in turn would made it so I could go back to my rock music and be much, way more inventive. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Uh, and so they feed each other really. And so yeah. anybody that knows me knows that I've got like three, um, personalities, musical personalities, winger, the band, mm-hmm which I would never do without Rev and Rod mm-hmm. and Kip Winger, the solo music, which is just like experimental pop where I no rules, no boundaries. Mm-hmm. And then my pure orchestral music where I really am trying to fit in the narrow window that you have to fit in to be taken seriously as a legitimate, like, uh, you know, orchestral composer of today. You can't, you can't write something that sounds like Rachmaninoff. You can't do, and a lot of the film composers, you know, it does do, they emulate a lot of the classic mm-hmm. greats from the 19th century and 20, because the the movie requires it and people mm-hmm. don't want to hear challenging harmonies and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. 
isn't that a lot of what modern that, plastic? That was that was quite that was that was quite a ramble. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Isn't that a lot of what modern classical music sort of has? I don't want to say devolved to, but it's sort of all been. There's not like. There's not a lot of people out there, you know, composing symphonies anymore. It's if they are, it's for a movie soundtrack. It's almost like the movie soundtrack business is makes up the majority of the classical music that regular people would be familiar with, and the rest are just kind of on the fringes somewhere where that wasn't the case, you know, hundreds of years ago or whatever it is. Yeah, and I mean, classical music was always in the mainstream, and now it's not so mm -hmm. mainstream in terms of contemporary classical music, but that's right. not really true. There's a lot of incredible classical composers thriving and way more than you would ever imagine hmm. you know you just have to you just have to kind of get in the know mm -hmm. and you know you get you, you learn about the and i'm all about the american guys because that's who i hang with and and you know i don't know much about composers from other countries i'm like okay you know you know top of the list chris christopher Rouse. i mean he's absolutely incredible i mean hmm. and we and you know part of the the added bonus to my life is I've become friends with Chris Rouse. Mm. He's incredible. Mm -hmm. Richard Daniel for who I studied with. These guys are all these genius level classical composers, Jennifer Higdon, mm. John Corleano, uh, Michael Doherty, you know, yeah. Mason Bates is Mason Bates is a young composer, younger. I mean, he's probably in his forties, but you know, he is, he puts, uh, electronic music in with symphonies and does it very well that's cool to be taken to be like yeah. shoulder to shoulder with some of your new heroes you know invited to the oh game God, or at the cool kid table you know it, it, it's incredible to be able to hang with these guys um kevin puts you know there's i could give you a huge list of yeah. contemporary composers that just do commissions for symphonies and mm. they're amazing good okay i didn't realize they're amazing um yeah yeah so let me ask you this we we try to sensitively cover some of the business side of the music business on here and at this stage in your career do you pay your bills primarily through your classical work or is it through touring with winger or is it royalties you don't have to get you know into the weeds on this, but I am kind of curious that you do so many. You have your no, hands I'll in all tell these you. things. No, you know? no, I'll, no, listen, dude. I'm a working stiff. I'll tell you. Anyway, <laughs> okay. I, make, I, I, you know, most of my money comes from live performing. Okay. And as winger, and uh, right? you know, or solo, my solo. Uh, right, right. Show that's what with, I mean. The rock percussionist. Side. Yeah. And then, and then uh, residuals from streaming and all that stuff from the winger stuff and the kip winger stuff and, and actually you know i've made some money on the classical thing and and in the classical you get paid for example there's a i forgot to mention one of the all-time great american composers john adams i mean mm. he's making bank i mean and all he does is classical music so yeah it's possible but you have to have a huge repertoire and you have to be you know you have to really be able to deliver the goods and, and mm. have been in the game a while but I do, I do make money from the classical thing, so it's kind of a bit of a trifecta of all my okay. stuff. Okay. I still get, I still get what would now consider to be great money to make a winger record, and so I kind of just stream it all along. I'm not in the uh, Bill Gates club or anything right. like that, but right. I mean, uh, you know, winger, winger never made it that huge. But what we always, what I always tried to deliver was a better record every time and super high quality mm -hmm. music that would be around 
when you go back and listen to it in 10 years, it's still relevant and it still sounds cool and it's still interesting and you can still discover things in mm-hmm. it. I would say that's absolutely true. I finally saw you guys live, uh, it was about a year ago, I think. It was here at Herman's Hideaway on Broadway in Denver. Maybe you maybe you play there often, I don't know. This was about a year, year and a half ago. And um, one thing that I was, <clears throat> and you probably know this, I mean, all four of you guys, Reb, Rod, even Paul, you, were always, I think, sort of lauded for your musicianship, your ability to play your instruments very well, even as the, as you called it, bullying coming in from the other, from those other bands. There was this dichotomy, or it seemed like, maybe this was not happening in real time, maybe I'm applying this after the fact, but there's all this respect for you guys as players, but not necessarily as songwriters, even though... Any one of those other bands, I think, would kill to write a song as great as Madeline. You know what I mean? albums of that stuff you know yeah maybe there's not a good enough question there but i wondered if you were aware of the dichotomy between the respect for you guys as musicianships versus the sort of marginalization as you guys as a band you know oh are you are you kidding me it's a it's an ongoing joke with us okay it's an it's an ongoing joke with us we know pound for pound musician level that we are at when you put us up against a lot of other bands yet we were perceived to be you know kind of like a poison mm-hmm. you know nothing mm-hmm. no disrespect to poison but i mean pound for pound musician wise i mean there's mm-hmm. no comparison yeah they got way more money than i do <laughs> and i love I, I love the guys they're all super nice guys mm-hmm. great rock show so there's no judgment mm-hmm. but i'm just saying you know yeah. of course we're aware of that okay. you know rodden Rod Morgenstein and I will be on stage and we'll get pissed off. <laughs> we'll be like, no, God damn it. We're, you know, this is good. We should be massive. You know? I know. So we're, it's funny, you know, but we, we, we are a band of very close friends. We're not a band that hates each other. We don't mm-hmm. go out just to make the money. We enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. we're the best of friends and, and we know, what happened to us and it's mm-hmm. you know we we get that we have a very unique place in rock history as as uh the unfairly sentenced yeah. you know to death yeah <laughs> it's so true um I, okay i 
I don't know how to I don't know how to broach this, you know, sensitively. So I'm just going to say it. I uh, how much of that do you think with was just you being too good looking? You know, I have this conversation a lot with friends who, you know, we're big NXS fans or we're big Duran Duran fans. And those guys were just too handsome to have been taking, taken seriously by Rolling Stone magazine or something like that. And I wondered if, I mean, you were a beautiful man, you know, there was no question. So you knew that yourself because of like, you know, Playgirl magazine or whatever. How much of it do you think came from that? From just being like, this guy's too good looking to also be talented. <clears throat> a lot of people said that mm. I used to make a joke like maybe I should take an ice pick to my face you know this kind of thing but <laughs> right. but, but listen man I grew up like Paul Stanley was my hero yeah. like you know the Beatles I mean they're good looking guys you know like uh, I just I mean I can't help the way I look I, I, sure. I of course I played it up I mean I totally was a ham mm -hmm. but on the other hand I studied ballet very hard and, mm -hmm. and, and seriously so when I was a on stage doing spinning around and kicking my leg up and stuff, man, I worked on that. That mm -hmm. wasn't just, that wasn't just, uh, you know, some off the cuff kind of performing. This, this was years and years in the making. Mm -hmm. Like if you watch the, the Madeleine video, man, that was years in the making of, of how to create something beyond David Lee Roth, mm -hmm. which is who I was like, okay, <laughs> he's the greatest front man. Paul mm -hmm. Stanley, David Lee Roth. Let me be a combo of those guys because David Lee Roth doesn't play an instrument. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to jump around like David Lee Roth and kind of do the glam thing like like uh, Paul Stanley. You know, this is where I, my orientation was. Mm -hmm. I was trying to take it to another level, which if you look back at it, I think I kind of did. Do yeah, that, you kind of did. You yeah. Know? And so, and by the way, every single guy in every band back then was trying to make themselves look as good Oh, sure. And kind of fem femboy glam as yeah. they could. So I mean, I I was just working with what I had. Totally, totally. Um, do you think the fact that do you think having a song seventeen may have factored into it too? What's the story of seventeen? You've probably been asked that a million times, and I'm sorry if you have. That song I was asked up. that yesterday. I was asked. I was asked it yesterday. I, Eddie Trunk asked me, and I <laughs> and I like they were like, "Was it a true story?" And I was like, "It's a fictitious story put together by a couple experiences that I had, and I stole the title from a Kingdom Come record." Hmm. You know, that's how that went. Okay, I mean, there's um, a long tradition. And of this. I, Christine sixteen. It's nothing new, but you had a big hit with it. She, 
Well, hey, man, she was just 17, and you know what I mean? I mean, come <laughs> right. on, the Beatles, like... Of course. I mean, like, at least I'm in good company. Of course. Chuck Berry, all of them do it, you know? Okay, so tell me about those days, those heady days. The first album comes out, there's a bunch of hits off of it. You're a sex symbol. Maybe the backlash hasn't quite started yet, or maybe it was immediate, I don't know. But, you know, you were talking about earlier about waiting tables and the struggle, moving to New York and just trying to make it. When it happened, how did you celebrate? You know, what did you do with that first big check? I never got that first big check, dude. Oh, really? I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it was a band. The producer got a bunch. So it was like, I never got the million dollar check, man. Mm. I got, I got, uh, I got some, I got some big checks, but not like that. I mean, I was like, I had a couple good years, uh -huh. but I never, it, you know, I hate to let you down. No, that's okay. That's I mean, why I what, ask. I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was like, we went gold. Great. I can take a photo with my gold album, and send it to my mom and dad. Cause I dropped out of high school and they were flipping out that I'd never make it, never right. be able to, you know, get a job. Uh -huh. You know, that's what it meant for me Right. was to vindicate my parents for, yeah. for, you know, well, my dad especially was, you know, he was, he was, my dad is an amazing individual, and he, he he made me write him an essay on why I wanted to drop out of school. And mm -hmm. it was really because I wanted to go on the road with my band, mm -hmm. and that, that school was kind of, quote, getting in the way of my education. Mm -hmm. And he allowed me to do it, and everybody else was freaking out. And so when I got gold and platinum record, I, I, was, I wanted to vindicate my dad, man, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then yeah, you buy a house and you kind of do the thing, and it's cool, you know. Yeah. I mean, first thing I did was buy a buy a, a loft in in New York City. Man. Nice. I mean, if God, I wish I'd never sold it. I'd be a gajillionaire. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we've talked about the rock um, and roll. What about the sex and drugs? You don't have to go there if you don't want to. But were they? I would have to think at that time they were. Probably... I never, I never, I never did drugs. Really? Yeah, Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper used to call me the briefcase rock star because when I was. But when I went to New York and I was waiting tables, I got a gig to play with Alice Cooper on four songs on an album. Bo Hill yeah. um, was like, get up here right now. We need a bass player for four songs. And I went up and I just killed it because I was really on my game then. And, mm -hmm. and Kane Roberts said, hey, that was amazing. And Alice was like, great job. And then I got some background vocals and a great singer. And Kane was like, you should mention to Alice if we go out, you know that you'd like to go and I was like cool so I owe it to Kane mm. and then Alice was like yeah let's get him so we so I joined the band we um, wrote you know uh, Prince of Darkness I mean it, it's starting to happen Darkness. 
success about buying that loft, your dad doing it all for your dad, him making you write a yeah. paper on it. Maybe getting the job with Alice was that was vindication to your dad. Like, look, I came out here and it happened, you know? Well, yeah, when I got the job with Alice, that was very vindicating. But when I got a, when I got my gold and platinum record on my own, that was really what it, that was really the thing, you know? So yeah. the Alice Cooper job was like, that was cool sideband gig. And, and I learned so much from Alice and, oh, that's what I was saying. Oh, the they called the me the, brief, the, the briefcase rocker because mm. mm -hmm. I was, I was studying, I took composition at that time in New York. And so I would go on, I'd be on the bus and I'd be studying like a string quartet by so-and-so. Mm. And mm. I never did drugs and I never, and I did drink some, although that really messes your voice up and I haven't had a drink since 2012. But Good for you. I was pretty straight and narrow in Alice Cooper's band and he is too, by the way. Oh yeah. Really, uh, we had a very good time, but it wasn't anything like that. And then when I got into my band, you know, we had fun and, mm -hmm. and definitely, you know, there was some of that stuff going on, but never drugs. Mm. Okay. And, uh, and I was really like study music, write music, become a better, you know, study theory. What is this? And listening to, Oh my God, how do they do that? And, and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. You know? mm -hmm. So let's talk about kind of, you know, th the second album in the heart of the young that comes out it's probably not quite as i don't remember it didn't seem quite as quite as successful but it was still perfectly fine it was i don't think it was a big enough drop off to cause any concern for winger or anything like that i'm guessing miles away is a big hit But then by the time Pull comes around, every one of you guys' careers are decimated. And Pull is a fantastic album. You know, one of my favorite winger songs yeah. is Junkyard Dogs. And it's, uh, but no one knows that album exists. You know, basically, barely, because the that time just, that wave crashed.
How were you dealing with that? It was, it was a very special album. Man, when we went into production on that record, I mean, I knew we were dead. Were you? So yeah. I was like, I better come. I better come up with something amazing, you know. Yeah. And and I, I had I had writer's block. I couldn't write one lyric to save my life. We manager, and and that's the time I got out of my production deal and I was completely on my own. And I got a manager. Long story, but he worked with Motley Crue and blah blah blah. And I had a writer's block, so he 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 said, well, let's get somebody to come in and help you with lyrics. Mm-hmm. And so this cat comes in to help us with lyrics. And I didn't dig that to begin with, but I liked the guy. He was a good guy and he was a good writer. Mm-hmm. So we write this tune, No Man's Land. Mm-hmm. And like it's his job to like come up with the words. calls me in the middle of the night and comes up with the most lame words that I've ever heard. And I was so mad that I rented a car and I drove to Florida all the way out to Santa Fe and back to New York and finished the record with all the words to pull. <laughs> right. Basically, not uh, not all of them, but uh, most yeah. of them. Because I was so insulted, like, sure, man, I can't do that. But it was great. It kick-started me out of my writer's block. And we used Mike Shipley on that. And that's really where I learned to make an album with mm. Mike Shipley. I learned how to hear things and I learned how to record really. It took it to another level. I mean, he was he was the Picasso of engineers and mix engineers. Yeah. Rest his soul. Yeah. But we knew what was going on, but we, and when we delivered Down Incognito, the label was like, oh my God, this is a hit song.
they were like, we're not going to do a video. We, they were like, sorry, no video. And I, was like, and I called up the president of the label at the time, and I was like, no video? <laughs> I just sold you guys. I paid back every penny I borrowed from you guys, and you made $15 million or whatever. You're, what the hell? And he right. was like, okay, well, you can have a video. No way. And then, uh, yeah. Oh, That's man. exactly what happened. And so we did Down Incognito video, and we, we got a little action. We sold... We sold about 450,000 albums of that. By today, oh. if you did that today, I sure. mean, that's the hugest thing ever. But yeah. back then, it wasn't so bad. It almost went gold. Yeah, no, that's and not that bad. Considering what, consider, considering what we had coming against us, the tidal wave against us, it mm -hmm. wasn't so bad. Yeah, no, that's not that bad. You talk about um, everything you learned from Shipley. I mean, you guys are done for a while after that. You go on to solo your solo stuff. I'm a big fan of your Songs from the Ocean Floor album. Thank you. I especially Broken Open is one of, not just my favorite song of yours, but one of my favorite songs ever. an album you're happy with you know it's the end the grunge is coming along and wiping all you guys out you've learned a lot about music making and album making where are you putting all of that into your solo work oh yeah, totally. yeah. I, I, I had moved from new york to miami and and then got hit by hurricane andrew and decided to move to santa fe because it was i had a lot of friends there and i wanted to a more kind of a spiritual vibe i knew that we were cooked I didn't know what the future held. I had no idea really what to do, but I wanted to, I knew I wanted to make a studio in my house and be in the desert. Mm -hmm. So I went to the desert, built a studio, and I just started experimenting and I and I said, "Okay, I'm not going to sing, I'm not going to sing scream and sing, you know, I'm going to I'm going to develop a whole new thing about singing. No guitar solos." Mm -hmm. And I just kind of gave myself a, a kind of a fairly basic outline. Mm -hmm. And I just experimented. That was all I could do. Hmm. And so I finished this record. Mike mixed it at my house on a really crummy hmm. console. I mean, it wasn't so bad. And it still sounds amazing. You know, I reinvented myself with that and tried to get a record deal and nobody would touch me. Hmm. Nobody would touch me with a 10-foot hmm. pole. That's a shame. What you, uh, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, and there's, there's a lot of... I don't know if they're religious references or maybe just spiritual references in a lot of your work. I mean, there's cross, there's baptized by fire, especially your solo work at that time. There's a lot of references to, you know, 
opening up your spirit and uh, being guided by a spirit or whatever. Are you a religious person or a spiritual person? Or is that just where you were at the time? Where do you stand on all that? Yeah, very spiritual person. Metaphysical okay. leaning. My dad was a minister who got out of it early, but I come from a family of, on my dad's side, a lot of ministers and stuff. And, and my mom was really into metaphysics. And I did have a lot of spiritual leanings and I had a lot of read a lot of kind of, you know, metaphysical books and Carlos Castaneda and, 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 you know, I am discourses and all kinds of stuff and applied a lot of that in, in my music, especially on songs from the ocean floor, because, well, and at the time, like I did, I did this conversation seems like a dream. And shortly after that, my first wife died in a car wreck. So it was like, you know, your name is toxic you can't get a gig. You've lost your record deal, your publishing deal. Nobody will book you. And then your wife dies. It was a very dark time. I bet. So I, I did what I always do. I turned to my music and I, uh, I, I poured it all into my music. Hmm. Songs from the ocean floor. I mean, it's, I mean, the first line on the, on the record is cross the sea of crippling pain. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's where I was at. I just, it was a diary of where I was at. And, uh, how did you weather those years? I mean, that ha- you talk about, you know, again, going back to the business side, they had to have been sort of lean, you know, and then you lose your wife. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. there's all this, you know, did you, I don't know, how did you make a living? How did you keep it going? You know, how'd you pay your bills? Well, I, I saved enough money in okay. the time I did. I was never extravagant. And I was also still collecting royalties because royalties are paid, you know, way late. Okay. And then I had a song on on that on a on a monster ballads record that mm. you know would pay I'd get a check for forty G's or something you yeah. know, like, and so mm. I I did get royalties and, and through that time and and I did do a gig here and there but it was really it was very lean and I was mm-hmm. uh, I had no idea what I was going to do yeah so you know I made those two records two thousand two I moved to Nashville okay is that when things started to turn around. Um, I don't know if interest came back in the band or you were able to make a living songwriting with other people or focusing more on classical. What was the linchpin that sort of, you know, got you out of that dark period? We went back on the road with the Poison Tour in 2002 and we kind of got into that a little bit. We played Nashville and Paul and I thought it was really cool. So Paul was like, if you move here, I will. And I'm like, great, let's go. Because yeah. I felt like I had to get out of Santa Fe at that point. Okay. I just needed some new blood. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult adjustment, by the way, because Santa Fe is a very spiritual and open-minded, forward-thinking place. And Nashville at the time wasn't so much. Mm-hmm. It is now, but it wasn't. Yeah. And it was a big adjustment. I didn't like it, actually. Mm-hmm. And now it's awesome. But right. I went there because I could have gone to L.A., but I, I had a little more connections in Nashville from some people from the old Atlantic days. And I went there. And uh, it was difficult, but I did started getting more gigs, and 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 then I did a benefit for Jim Pedrick, mm. and Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons was there, and then Alan Parsons called me to be his singer. Nice. And so I did. I did a year or so singing for Alan Parsons, who's amazing, by yeah, the way. Yeah, he is. So stuff started kind of coming up. So are you out on the road with Alan Parsons singing like "Eye in the Sky" and stuff like that? Yeah, totally. All wow. the hits. Good for you, man. That is great. 
That's great. There's a lot of lyrics to remember. I bet. <laughs> I bet. Um, okay. I've, you know, I've kept you for almost an hour and we haven't even gotten to the new thing yet. And there's, I could go on like this forever, but um, let's talk about Get Jack. You've written the, or composed music for a theatrical uh, musical. Is that it? So Get Jack is a musical that I've written with a guy named Damian Gray, who's a New York writer and has done, uh, directed several musicals and also written movies and screenplays and all this. Very talented guy. And uh, I set out to want to write an opera or a musical because I wanted to do something much bigger than a 20-minute symphonic work. Well, but actually, as the story goes, I don't tell the story much because I always forget a fellow by the name of David Finn, who's a lighting d a director high up in the opera world and was friends with a, the guy who did my first album cover and does all my videos, Dan Hupp. Okay. We were all in San Francisco because they, they got David was nominated for an Isadora Duncan Award and I was nominated. My friend Dan lived there and he's a Emmy Award winning set designer who knew David. So we're all sitting around having beers. And David worked with Barishnikov for nine years. So we're all, mm. you know, very rich conversations. And I was like, I want to write, pounded my fist on the table and said, I want to write an opera, man, or a mm -hmm. musical. Six months later, I get an email from David who turns me on to a guy named uh, Chris Yonke, who's a big time Broadway arranger, but more of a rock guy, but can orchestrate like no one's business. Chris turns me on to a couple people that I didn't really vibrate with. And then he, he introduced me to Damien and I did a Skype with Damien and Damien. I was like, okay, I can totally write with this guy. You know, mm -hmm. you know, Damien told me I had this idea about Jack the Ripper. And I was like, Oh my God, man, mm -hmm. I just, you know, you're a naughty one, saucy Jack. He's like, no, 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 there's nothing like that. <laughs> it's uh, he, he said, he said the words, he said the name Eric Satie. And I was like, I'm in. Mm. Derek Satie's very influential to Debussy and Ravel and French composers, simple music, but incredible. It devolved into the five women Jack the Ripper killed who come back for vengeance. And it's, but it's very, it's a, it's a portrayal of good and evil in all of us, you know? So there's mm. this kind of whole interaction going on where you're asking yourself about good and evil while you watch it, you know? So, um, I spent three and a half years writing it and, mm. It went through several incarnations, and, and what what's now is out, well, it's pre-order right now, it's, it's, it's the Get Jack concept album. Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Strive, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly. Hello, darlings. Our souls are corrupted, all hope is lost Nobody knows who this monster is Except the five of you, that is Surely the devil must see all that goes on Only the man of high has that kind of skill One day this killer will die and will be his choir The devil's impatient, you don't have to wait We can get this done now and have Jack meet his face Down do. Have you not read Dickens? That ghost shit is true. It's a bit of a wonder what the devil can do. You'll rise once again like that Lazarus fellow and return to the east end of town. 
In his kingdom come, that will be done. And Jack will wear a new crown. We won't find him in Whitechapel. Okay. And it's uh, <clears throat> five five Broadway singers. It's two double albums, like 30 some odd tracks. Um with a great musicians. I recorded all the orchestras and all the orchestra stuff in Prague. And uh, my buddy who worked with Mike Shipley mixed it with me and, and he did most of the work with a little bit of my direction. Okay. Super high level production and, and uh, singers are amazing. We've got one's a Tony winner and a bunch of Broadway alumni people. And, and uh, it was, I've, I've done, it was more work than I could have ever imagined. You know, we're in the process of trying to do a lab. We have a our director's Kelly Devine, who's commonly known as a choreographer. She did Rock of Ages and Come From Away, and so we're we're in the game. And yeah. it just it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of money, and and uh, so the album's out uh, for pre-order now. It comes out July nineteenth, and and nineteenth. Uh, okay. You know, onward and upward. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if, and if you send your if you go to getjack.com and you send in your proof of purchase. You can, you can, all the links are at getjack.com. You can send in your proof of purchase and there's a place to submit your proof of purchase where you could be eligible to, we're giving away a one of a kind Get Jack guitar. Nice. Well, look, I gotta, I wanna ask one last thing related to all of this. When you look back to your, I'm, I'm guessing you have led quite a life. Um, when you think back on all of this, what is just one of your crazy, craziest memories? I'm guessing if you, you may have met a hero at some point. You talked about Zeppelin and Grand Funk. Did you ever play with those guys? What is just the craziest memory from these, you know, 35 years in the music biz? Craziest memory? I mean, just shocking. Well, the Nijinsky I don't know, like your favorite. Is, like, what's your favorite memory? Yeah, I assume Nijinsky was oh, going to be one of that. But what's when you're just like, I cannot that, believe that, that happened to me. Well, that was, that was one of the all-time most surreal things that happened. But, like, one of the most incredible things was when Nijinsky, when, when they were performing Nijinsky in, in Nashville and Andre Watts, the great pianist came up to me and goes, man, I really like that piece. You got to keep writing. Man. Wow. I was like, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. Having dinner with Christopher Rouse. I mean, that's, that's what I get off on, you know, uh, like I'm in it for the art, man. It'd be great to be a gajillionaire, but if mm -hmm. I couldn't do what I do artistically, I'd be bummed. Yeah. 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 Well, it's really I'm amazing. sorry to let you down. No, I'm not let down. That's why I asked. That It's been very clear in t with talking to you that, yeah, the rock life was great, but what's really kind of feeding your soul is this classical part of your career now, especially the, the accolades that come with it and the socializing with your heroes and the acceptance. Well, you know, I, I, I need to correct you on one thing, actually, because they all feed each other. Like I'm writing mm. this symphony and it's so difficult that I'm just dying to write a song and produce a song. Cause I'm really, I know I'm good at it and it would be like, uh, it'd be like, Oh, I'm going to go to Starbucks and, and just chill out for a while. You know, that's kind of, yeah. and then, and then, Oh, wait a minute. I want to get on stage with my band and rock out, you know? Yeah. So it does, it's, it's, it is a real merry go round of, of artistic kind of uh, fertile ground for me. That's great. You know, as, as much as I'm, inspired by classical music and, and composing it, it's torture mm. to do it. Mm. It's absolute torture for me. And I know other composers have said that some don't, but I mean, it's, 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 
it's really, really difficult. And I don't recommend it to anybody unless you can't live without it. Yeah. You know, yeah. The only reason to do that is if you can't not do it. Well, it must ultimately be more satisfying then. The, the results must ultimately be more satisfying, I guess. It's very satisfying to hear a 60-piece orchestra bang yeah, out your stuff. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, yeah. One of the greatest moments of my life was to be able to jam with Mark Farner and kind of become his go-to bass player at Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mel Shocker was the biggest influence on me of bass playing ever. And to be able to be like, do 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 you know, playing on your captain with him, or Aimless Lady. Aimless Lady! It's amazing. And he's a, oh my God, he sings like a bird still, man. Yeah. I love that stuff. That's incredible. I just talked to Don Brewer for the podcast a couple, about a month ago, maybe. And, um, those guys are great. I mean, whenever I talk to somebody, I go deep dive back into all their old music to get ready. And it was so much fun just absorbing Grand Funk there for a while. You know, those guys are the best. Well, look, I, uh, I, um, it's been a pleasure of if, in my life finally coming around to discovering Winger over the last like 15 years of my life and your solo work and rooting for you on your classical work. I listen to it. I'm obviously more of a rock guy, but I, can absolutely respect everything that's happening happening for you and I'm rooting for you as a fan of yours and I'm happy that Thank this, you. I absolutely am so happy that this stuff is happening to you because you absolutely deserve it anyway thanks Kip man thanks, you're the look. best I really appreciate it okay alright take, take care you too bye bye there you have it Kip Winger love that guy such a regular mellow dude you know what I mean you would never guess um, once again, Get Jack, it's out now. Uh, interesting little tidbit. When we did this interview about a week or two ago, I knew that he had something coming out, but I didn't know what it was. And he emailed me over some information just shortly before we got on the phone to do the interview. So I didn't know that much about it then. Um, so you're going to, I, I wish I had been more informed. I could have maybe asked some more detailed questions, but I didn't have the information really for prior to hopping on with him. So anyway, check out Get Jack. There's a Facebook page. There's videos on YouTube about it. Of course, kipwinger.com, whatever. Uh, I want to close it out with another album off that Songs from the Ocean Floor album, his solo album that I like a lot. This is called Cross. Now, next week, we are going back the other direction. We are going into primarily 80s British alternative production. Uh, this is a guy that if you were paying close attention to New Wave and 80s alternative in coming from Britain in the in the 80s, you saw his name everywhere. Okay? I love it. And it's another Paul Underwood production. So look for that one next week. And this week is a uh, d deep dive. And I think I told everybody already, Ron Nevison is coming back to talk about Hart's 1985 commercial breakthrough. It's one of my favorite conversations I've ever had since starting this podcast four years ago. So come back for that. It'll be out in a few days. Thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for putting everything together. You know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. I'll be honest, I'm thinking of getting rid of Twitter. It just makes me too angry these days. So I'm not that active. I was barely active on it anyway. I might even get less active, but you can find us on there if you want. All right? We'll see you in a few days.